Before we begin, I want to thank the sponsor of Oil & Gas Upstream, Oliva Gibbs. Oliva Gibbs provides clear legal solutions to complex oil, gas, and mineral law issues nationwide. We believe that when we focus on serving people, good things happen in the lives of our clients and employees. We just happen to be a law firm. Learn more at oglawyers.com. Oil and Gas Production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream Podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Milkett, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for Oil and Gas Upstream Research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE, founded Energia Consulting, and joined the Oil and Gas Global Network as a podcast host. I invite you to go to the OGGN website and check out all the other podcasts in the network and the new merchandise that's available now. Maybe even pick up the Oil & Gas Upstream t-shirt that reminds us that only the bits bind oil. Maybe for a Christmas present. And don't forget to sign up for OGGN's weekly newsletter, Sunday Update. All the links are in the show notes. And now I'd like to introduce today's guest, Sandy Williams, founder and CEO of ALP, Artificial Lift Performance. Sandy, thanks for being with us today. Hi, Elena. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Oh, thank you for accepting. Yes. I'm going to read your bio real quick here. Sandy Williams, founder and CEO, has worked in the petroleum industry for 27 years. He is the founder of Artificial Lift Performance, ALP, a company that specializes in helping operators get more oil, a skill he explains to the layman as being like steroids for oil fields. That sounds really good. We'll have to ask you about that. Sandy worked nine years for Amico, then Phoenix Schlumberger Artificial Lift, before becoming a consultant focused on artificial lift and production optimization. He has worked and lived in the USA, Oman, Venezuela, Ecuador, Colombia, and has taught over 200 courses related to production optimization and artificial lift, and is fluent in Spanish. Sandy, that's great. ALP has developed a software application to help operators monitor, analyze, and optimize wells with artificial lift. The software empowers engineers to make decisions quickly around production optimization. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds great, Sandy. Tell us a little bit about ALP, and and maybe you can tell us if you taught these 200 courses, some of these 200 courses in Spanish. We'd love to hear about that. Tell us about ALP. Sure. Um, I started ALP when I started out in my consulting business and originally all of my work was around consultancy and training for operators and that's that's where I got the experience of teaching a lot of these classes. And one of the things I found over the years of teaching all these classes is you teach people the techniques and then you'd run into an engineer a few years later and he'd say, that was a great class you taught. And you'd say, thank you, of course. And then I'd say... But the important thing is, are you using what I taught you? Right. And I always got the same response. No, we don't have time. Oh. And so after about 10 years of consultancy, I said, we need a better tool to do this. 
so that all wells are automatically optimized that doesn't need a person to take part and participate in the process. So I started developing my software, uh, which is called Pump Checker. In 2012, in 2014, we had the first commercial rollout of it. And ever since then, we've expanded. There's been a few dips and troughs with oil being a commodity. Um, a significant portion of the time since 2014, oil has been below $50 a barrel. But nevertheless, we've expanded our well count and our operator base and are now working. All of our clients are in North America and the Permian Basin. And we're monitoring um, and optimizing about 6,000 wells for a variety of operators. And we focus on electric submersible pumps and gas lift. And one of the key things that our software does that other softwares don't do is we integrate information from other sources. So we take operating information from the artificial lift in real time. We also take the production information from the wells from the operator's well test database. We take completion information from whatever the completion database is, and that gives us the capability to understand what's in the well, what should the artificial lift do in theory, and then compare that to what it's actually doing based on the real-time data. So right. to sum that up, basically what we're doing is taking the information that operators would normally have in disparate sources and integrating it and then performing analysis around it, which helps the operators make better decisions more quickly in an automated manner where the software is generating the results and presenting that to the operators or the engineers working for the operator. So is that why you say it's uh, operations on, store on steroids? On steroids. So uh, when we're talking artificial lift, um, occasionally in the past I'd say it's actually at Viagra for oil fields, but that got toned down <laughs> on my bio. <laughs> and essentially, when you're using artificial lift, you keep the well pumping longer at higher rates. So that's uh, that's what that little joke's all about. Okay. All right. I wish you'd warned me about that. <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's okay. So, um, <laughs> so for people who are um, not oil and gas experts, what are some of the kinds of decisions that operators need to make such that, number one, the artificial lift is optimized, but also the other factors um, for a particular well, right? It's a well-by-well -well operation. Um, some of the decisions that the operators would need to make such that this really helps them um, optimize their production. Sure. So the first thing, when you design a well, in the Permian Basin, you might be designing a well to produce 4,000 barrels a day. And that's 4,000 barrels a day of total fluid. And... Obviously, there's information that goes into the design, and that involves information around the reservoir. And as I teach in some of my courses, reservoir engineers are all liars because their information <laughs> is never. No, wait a minute. <laughs> and so, well, that's what we say about geologists. No, no, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, there's obviously information that goes into the design of the artificial lift system. And the well may come on better than you predicted, or it may come on worse than you predicted. So instead of giving you 4,000 barrels a day, you might only get two. Well, the first thing you want to know is, is there a problem with the well, or is there a problem with the artificial lift? And so that's one of the first things mm -hmm. that my software does. And then the next thing the software does is it's monitoring the well over time 
and saying, has there been a production drop here? And if so, it can help you identify potential causes of the production drop. Mm. And also, if the well is good and the artificial lift has the opportunity to gain you production, the software will actually give you the recommendations around what changes to make on the well to get incremental production. On top of that, we have alarming systems that we can set across the whole field or a group of wells or at an individual well level, which will detect when there's a change in the operating conditions of the well. So if there's a sudden change in any of the operating parameters or the amount of fluid that the well is producing, the software automatically identifies those for you. And it does all of that through management by exception, dashboards and exception reports so that the engineers don't have to spend time going looking for their problems and their opportunities. The software identifies automatically through dashboards which wells need attention. And so right. engineers spend so much of their time doing non-engineering work. They're processing invoices, they're writing uh, completion plans or frac programs or and so they have very little time to focus on production engineering. So the idea behind our software tool is to allow them in the little time that they've got, instead of going looking for the problems, being able to do the due diligence at that point in time to actually implement recommendations from our software and realize production gains. Right, right. Well, and, and the life, I was a production engineer. And so um, the part part of it has to do, as you say, with all the other ancillary uh, pieces that have to come together in order for us to uh, ensure production. Um, but also, we can't see what we're doing. It's not like there's a tank. The reservoir is not like a tank. It's It's not like a swimming pool full of water. It's like a swimming pool full of sand. And then you pour the water in there. And then you try to pull out the fluids and not the sand and uh, things that the sand may do if it happens to come in and ruin your pumps and, and all of the above. So so you're right. And then it's a well-by-well well analysis. And so if you have a thousand wells or some number of wells, um, you, have to, you have to really um, appreciate each one for what its strengths and weaknesses are and try to offset that. So as you're saying, automation helps the production engineer really get to what are the worst problems uh, today that we can deal which wells need the most help, if you will, um, so that the uh, production can be optimized well by well, but also for the for the whole field. That's about right. Is that about right? That's absolutely right. And, you know, if you read any of the oil field magazines or <coughs> magazines about anything right now, everybody talks about AI and better use of AI and, okay, chat mm-hmm. GPT has made all of that very trendy and and so on but really when we're talking about engineering and the oil field industry uh, the point you made is you might have a thousand wells and you want to look after them one by one the reality is you've got a thousand wells with about 20 parameters coming in real time and a well test on that well possibly every day at least a couple of times a month and so you want to be able to take account of all of that information and use it effectively to manage your wells better. And what we typically see in the industry is people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to bring in real-time data, and then all they're doing is drawing lines on a screen, literally one well at a time. And the key thing about AI and machines is that the machines or computers can actually look at the data all the time because... They don't go for lunch. They don't sleep. They don't. <laughs> they don't get tired. Yeah, they don't need a bathroom break. So, 
We, uh, we do all of that automatically, and we're doing it 24 hours a day using the computers. And so when a production operator or an engineer comes in in the morning, they can get presented with the range of opportunities that exist on their wells or the wells that are shut down that need to be brought back online. Uh, we automatically code the reason for the why the well has gone offline, if that's available to us. And then we also capture whenever a well's offline, how much production has it lost? So not only are we recognizing opportunities on wells, but we're also capturing all of the lost production that they have when when the wells aren't producing. Right, right. So um, you said that you uh, worked in, or I said in your bio that you worked in um, different countries. Um, is there uh, some, uh, can you talk, talk to me about the differences in operations perhaps from country to country who or who may not be, I mean, a lot of people on our, who listen are subject matter experts. Some are scientists, deep scientists. So while they understand the nature of uh, oil and gas and the nature of oil and the nature of gas and the nature of water and fluids and the subsurface and the like, they may not be that familiar with operations. Um, and then there are people who are not subject matter experts and, and, and you know, can make a valid assumption that uh, production operations are similar worldwide. Um, is that true? Give us give us a feel for that, especially as we're talking about the life cycle of a well. And in the beginning, it likely, most likely doesn't need artificial lift, but then as it matures, it needs more and more lift help. So, so talk to us about that. At, at a primary level, there are two big differentiators, and it's not driven by country. It's driven by offshore or onshore. <coughs> if you're offshore, <coughs> your flow line lengths tend to be very short, your metering tends to be very good. They have the capability to measure production very accurately from every well on a platform very frequently. And you obviously have much fewer wells, so it's much easier to, to stay on top of that. Uh, so offshore, you might have 30 wells on a platform or 60 wells. Onshore, it's probably more like 300 or 600 or the thousand you mentioned before. The other thing that characterizes the difference between onshore and offshore is that when you're onshore, you have to drive to get to the wells. And in North America alone, uh, there's roughly 50 people a year killed uh, as a result of driving accidents in the oil industry. And I had no idea. That's a big number. Oh our, my gosh, I had no idea. Our oil industry in North America kills more people than any other industry. So as a result of implementing digital technology and automating bringing in the real-time data, you can, and if you protect your wells properly, you reduce your risk at a number of levels. One is you can monitor all your wells remotely so you don't have to have people driving to the well sites all the time. Secondly, if artificial lift, for example, a pump fails because you haven't protected it properly, you're going to have to put a rig on the well. And every time you put a rig on the well, you're risking the potential for a blowout. But furthermore, you're also exposing people to slips, trips, drops on their fingers, drops on their feet type injuries. And so we believe that the software we're providing to the industry help reduce risk at a number of levels around uh, running efficient operations and, and making it safer for people. Yes, that's absolutely right. You know, you kind of forget uh, that operations really is uh, done by humans. 
uh, people go out there and check gauges and things like that. I mean, we're becoming more and more automated, but there are still a lot of companies who do it the old-fashioned way, if you will. Well, how would you? What would you guess in terms of automation versus non-automation in the in in U.S. in American um, oil fields? Just a guess um, at really, how far. It really depends yeah. on the size of the operator and what their attitude is towards technology. So if you're dealing with the majors, uh, you'll probably find that their level of automation is really, really good. And some of the larger independents also have really good operations. And at the other end of the scale, people that have 20, 30 wells, they've probably got less integration of information uh, and data systems and you know originally when we started working with people we might be working with a company with five or ten wells uh, they were usually harder to start working with because their level of integration and automation wasn't as good whereas our, our first fee paying customer in North America was Oxy and they have very good data systems and everything yeah, yeah. And pulling in. Yeah, and yeah. The other thing I was going to say about onshore is particularly in the Permian, historically you'd have had one well here, another well there. The Permian's evolved to having 10, 15 wells on a pad where they're all drilled from one location. And what that tends to result in is a lot of wells feeding into long skinny flow lines trying to get back to their tanks or production facilities so that's a major differentiator between the way things are in the Permian and the, and the way they may be in other parts of the world like Oman or Colombia right right so in the Permian um, and and you know some of the more mature reservoirs conventional reservoirs you would have you know one well really far away from yeah. another well if you will mm. um, with the advent of um, hydraulic fracturing and entree into unconventionals and that's the new life brought to the Permian is the unconventionals then that is the um, efficiency of uh, producing uh, of, of drilling and producing wells from many wells from a single pad or a small group of pads uh, and having the wells go out um, further because the the water the um, the rock is less permeable and so it's harder for the fluids to move toward the well and so we conduct hydraulic fracturing to make those channels those openings in the rocks so that the fluids can flow and so we put a lot of them together in order to have the production because each one maybe doesn't produce as much as um, a single conventional wells um, as as we had uh, historically so okay so that's part of the evolution I mean that's what you're seeing in terms of part of the evolution of uh, production operations over time so with respect to companies that are in that, you know, they're not, you know, Elena's oil and gas company with 25 wells. They are not at Oxy. Um, what, what would be the size of the company where, you, you know, you'd start to say, you know, you really have, it's a natural for you now in the evolution of your growth of your company to start uh, moving toward this kind of uh, addition to our operations, to your operations. With respect to the software and the integration of information, you know, how, how do you talk to people about thinking about it? I mean, there's people listening, so help them kind of answer this question for themselves. Is it time for me to move in this direction? So the simple answer to this and the reason I built our software originally was other products that were in the market that did aspects of what we 
did had a huge licensing cost. And so you'd have to pay several hundred thousand dollars to implement our kind of software for a number of wells. And you needed a minimum well count to make it viable. So when we built our software originally, we implemented a pricing model that was on a price per well basis per month or per year. So that our product is completely scalable from well, one well up to thousands of wells. And our smallest client, when they first came on board, started off with five wells. And now they've got 450 wells in our system. So that's a great story of growth, both for them and for us, in, in that we've been able to scale our product offering from supporting them during startup of drilling operations on their lease all the way through to being fairly mature in their operations now. And then we have bigger clients that are very well established that have thousands of wells. And so we don't we don't really have a sweet spot. What we look for is a, a team in a company that want to drive improvement. And if you have a manager or a team lead or somebody that might not necessarily know what he needs to do to make things better, but has a genuine desire to make things better. And one of the approaches we always take, uh, and a lot of companies either chase production or they chase lowest cost. And our part of our philosophy is there's a middle road between those where it's lowest total cost of operation. And so we believe that our software and we have uh, a process that we implement called the six, six pillars of production optimization, or we call it true production optimization. And when we start talking to a potential client about using our software, we have a scorecard process that we walk them through that helps them evaluate where they are against the six pillars of production optimization. And then we can also do a value proposition calculation that helps them decide or define the size of the prize around implementing our software. and their operations and usually we find that when we implement our software they'll make enough money in the the first month to pay for the software for a year for all their wells and usually when they implement it initially they're just implementing a, a small selection of their wells maybe 30 wells and as we go on month by month we'll we'll slowly scale and expand the and usually what we do is we start with our most productive wells demonstrate the value and then they can slowly step into it as they see the benefit from using the software so it's a in a way it's a if if we don't cure your pain then you don't pay for it but if you like that, it, that's you carry on yeah yeah so so with respect to um you know thinking about your operations and operating and optimizing them and then all of the extra information that you get and are able to integrate that seems as though um, that would be helpful to reservoir engineers trying to come up with the next strategy for the reservoir. Um, and so it almost doesn't, uh, I'm going to ask you this, does it matter whether you're dealing only with, say, high-volume wells on, um, on ESP, or does it matter if you're um, you know, dealing with closer to stripper wells and um, rod pump? I mean, what, what would be... What would you say about that in terms of being able to apply software and gather the uh, all of the information and then provide this value proposition for the whole operation? So 
friend of mine that was a management consultant for Cap Gemini a number of years ago said, always stay close to the money. Always, <laughs> oh, there you go. And, and if you look at where the money is, it's where the wells that produce the most oil. And, you know, with our software, we've dealt with wells in Colombia, for example, that are producing 20,000 barrels of fluid a day, but most of it's water. But they still get a lot of oil there as well. So you might be 95% water, 5% oil. On the other hand, in Texas, uh, once the wells have cleaned up, maximum rates probably somewhere between four and 6,000 barrels of fluid a day, and that's maybe half water, half oil. So you, you, we have, we started off with our product, so only doing electric submersible pumps, which are one of the higher rate methods. Then we uh, developed a, a gas lift module in 2017, and we now probably have 50-50 between ESP and gas lift in our system. And then last year we evolved the capability to do uh, plunger assisted gas lift and so uh, we've slowly expanded the number of wells that we can cover uh, but we've stayed away from rod pumps because they tend to be more like the stripper wells you talked about and there's while there's money to be made they don't want to pay the money for automation and software and yes there's a lot of stripper wells in North America but you know, it's the 80-20 rule. If you can uh, oh. capitalize on 20% of the wells that make 80% of the money for the oil company, then they're probably happier to pay you a small portion of that money to have your service and your software. I think the other thing that differentiates us in, in what we do around software is we have uh, several petroleum engineers that work for the company. And as well as offering a software product, we have a number of people in the company that have worked around artificial lift and understand artificial lift. So it's not like we're a new AI company that have said, oh, you've got data, we can do this for you. We've actually got the experience of working with these types of wells. And with most of our customers, we don't just sell them the software. We actually have weekly meetings with them, do the weekly well reviews with them, and help them learn to use the software, but also help them use the software to manage their wells better. And then we track the changes in our software. We've also got task tracking in our software so that as part of these well reviews, we can say, can you do this? Can you do that? And then we can track whether it's been implemented and track the, the benefit or gain the operator gets from making those changes. Yeah, yeah. So with respect to the life cycle of a well, so you start out as a high volume producer on ESP and then you, you know, eventually um, production declines and whatever, but you wouldn't withdraw the soft, you wouldn't withdraw your operational strategy um, just because of the lower volume since you've got everything in place. How does that work? So I said we don't do rod pumps, which right, are the right. low production methodology. So just mm -hmm. to, kind of frame things an ESP can probably cover from 6,000 to about 500 barrels a day gas lift on your if you're on high pressure gas lift could probably do comparable rates if you're doing regular gas lift you're probably more in the region of 2,000 down to 500 barrels a day and then sub 500 a day you're probably still injecting gas but using a plunger 
and then later in the life, depending upon the operator's philosophy, they may continue with plunger or at some point they may convert to rod pump. What we've done within our software is we don't have a diagnostic capability around a rod pump, but we allow them, the operator, to maintain all their wells in our system so they've got the complete history of the life of the well. And the production information, what we don't do right now on rod pumps is bring in the real-time data. We have the capability to do it, we just haven't done it. And we have a diagnostic tool built, we just haven't implemented it. And so, ultimately, the philosophy is they can have their, their wells in our system over the whole life of the well, albeit they currently don't have 100% capability of the software on all the different well types. Right, right. And, and what do you think about, say, the, the future for, um, you know, we talked about AI or as, a, as a future capability and the popularity that it has now and people thinking and moving forward. So, so would there be a time when, um, you know, AI would be part of this and how, how would AI be part of, part of this? Well, we're already building tools into our software that involve AI. We're, based on our subject matter expertise, we're able not only to recognize when there's a problem on a well, but we're actually diagnosing what the problem is. And that then also allows the operator to quantify how much production they're losing as a result of that problem. So if you have a pump in a well in Texas and it fails, most people will tell you that they can replace the pump in five to seven days. That's the absolute best they can do if they had all of their ducks lined up, lined up equipment mm -hmm. available, the rig available. The reality mm -hmm. is what we see in our software is oftentimes it's taking at least 20 days, sometimes over 30 days, and sometimes much more because there's competition for rigs and the more wells you've got, the more wells fall over. And so the more rigs you need to service changing out the equipment on the wells. And so using the tools in our software, if you're able to diagnose you've got a problem, you don't need to wait for equipment to fail. You can proactively change out the equipment. And when you proactively do the change, you have all your ducks lined up because you know you're going to do it. So you minimize the amount of time your well is offline and you regain the missing wedge of production you get because of the problem you had. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so this is, I, I love talking with you about this because operations and, you know, production, I mean, I talk about the bit by uh, finds oil, but after you find it, you got to get it to the surface. Otherwise, why did you even bother? So this is this is at the heart of what Upstream is, is about. And so, so I love what's it. What's ironic in our uh, business yeah? is that operators spend $10 ish to drill a well in the permian. And then... They're so busy looking after these other wells, new wells coming on, that they're often not paying attention to the wells they've already drilled that are producing. And they may have a problem in the artificial lift system. And if you can diagnose that, you get, you get the production back. But the other side of the story is when oil price drops and goes sub $40, which it did, what, March 2021? Or was it 20? Mm -hmm. Uh, 20. Well, it went to zero in 22. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 20 also. And then you, you had an oil price going to negative 40 in Texas because everybody's tanks were full and they couldn't move the oil. And we actually had 
our operators coming to us and saying, you know how you do that optimization thing where you tell us all of your wells and where we can speed them up and get <laughs> Yeah, that thing. Can, can you turn that <laughs> I think that around? makes us money. <laughs> oh, turn it around. Can you slow all the pumps down and tell us how much production we're going to get if we slow them down? <laughs> and, and so that was nice. But the point I was actually going to make is when the price of oil goes low, that's actually when you need our software most because that's when you really have to optimize your existing well set. Oh, right. But it's also the hardest sell in the market because when the price of oil has just dropped, nobody's meeting their forecasts. And so you've got to wait almost a year for people to reforecast and then start to spend again. And so it, it, it's been a funny cycle selling the software between 2014 and now in 2023 where we've had so many cycles. Um, but... We've, we've grown our business 35% year on year despite the, the troughs. And it's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a fun Yeah, fun it's a ride. fickle business. Yeah, fickle business and then not separated from, you know, global energy policies. So so we're in a special time and place right now. And um, my understanding, maybe you can, I don't know, put your, put your hat on and tell me what you think. But I'm hearing that, you know, we're not, you know, next year we might have... Uh, very tight markets and prices could go up higher than people are, you know, higher than we want them, right? And that's odd to say, but, you know, we want a sweet spot of prices where um, oil is still uh, of value and um, people can still get that supply and well, uh, demand doesn't fall off because the price is so high. C consumers and producers want stability. Yes, and it doesn't right. matter whether you're producing oil or wheat. If you have a lack of the product, then prices go high, and that affects everybody. So if it's wheat, then the price of your bread goes up and so on, mm -hmm. and cost of living goes up for everybody. And with oil, obviously we know that if the price of oil goes up, the price of the petrol pump goes up. When the price goes down, that price of the petrol pump takes a lot longer to come down. Um I think the, the interesting thing right now in the industry is we had COP23 here in Glasgow uh, ooh, a year and a half ago now. Right. Uh, and I actually, when that was here, took a look at oil and the future of oil and the need to reduce emissions and actually wrote a, a blog on it. And looking ahead... Over the next 25 years, everybody's excited about renewables and electric cars and all these other things. But if you look at the population growth worldwide and the predicted growth of renewables over the next 25 years, we need the oil we're producing right more just to keep up with the growth of population and the need for energy. And so oil industry gets a, a bad rap for being polluting. And uh, but it's to some extent a necessary evil, and a lot of the creature comforts that we draw on day to day are still based on petroleum products. A few years ago, Oxy made a a, a video of an actress going to receive an award at the Oscars, and as she was progressing from our hotel to eventually getting up on stage they were taking away products that were associated with things that had been made from the petrochemical industry. 
that right. grow. Her makeup right. disappeared and the wheels came off the car because there was no rubber. And Anyway, that was a, people don't realise just how many good things come from what is produced as a, as a result of the oil and petrochemical right. industry and how dependent mm-hmm. we are on it uh, day to day. And if you look at the demand for electric cars, it completely changes the timing and the need for power. Because there is very little draw typically on electricity at night. But if everybody's parking up their electric car and trying to charge it, where's that power coming from? Right, even at night. (laughs) Yeah, there's no sunshine at night. (laughs) And if the wind's not blowing. And so uh, renewables are great. uh, And the technology is constantly evolving and, and... at some point, we'd hope that renewables will produce a lot more of our power. And then there, there's nuclear, and that comes with its own uh, unpleasant potential side effects, as we saw in Chernobyl. And yeah. uh, mm-hmm. So the oil industry, it's not great, but it's what we've got right now. So, Well, I'm an all-of-the-above energy policy you know, person. I think that if you live in a place where it's warm and sunny all the time or most of the time, you should have you should have solar, and if it's windy, you should have wind. Yeah. But we haven't seen a time when we've eliminated any energy sources. We've only added on, added on, and so we want to. Yeah. So, so the renewables on. don't replace; they just add. The add on, and with respect to um, you know environmental footprint, if you will. Um, the oil and gas operations in the United States, because of our regulations and our uh, attentiveness to that, um, is the cleanest oil and gas operations in the world. So when we talk about imports, if we would to import oil, as some places do, um, we're not importing the best oil, if you will. So this is a real, uh, you know, a fallacy that we're that we're um, uh, talking about here. Well, we are at the end of our time, Sandy. I want to give you a chance to have a few last words to share with our listeners about um, artificial lift and about your software. Uh, artificial or anything? <laughs> well, artificial lift is a key competency, uh, particularly in North America, to produce the unconventional wells. You, very few of these wells will flow for. Uh, any period of time without using artificial lift to produce them and so the ability to manage your wells that use artificial lift effectively is is critical for North America and many other oil fields around the world and so uh, having the tools, having the software and having the know-how and capability to keep those wells producing optimally really is the key. Great, great, great words. Sandy Williams, founder and CEO of ALP, thank you so much for being our guest today and for sharing all about your contributions to the oil and gas industry. Elena, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil and Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.